Well, here we go. We are going to start our time tonight by um, turning to Psalm 97. And uh, just so you know, we're in a series of Psalms starting at uh, Psalm 93 and then skipping to Psalm 95 through 100. Well, you don't have to go there. You can just listen to this. And this will help you, I think. Psalm 93 and then Psalm 95 through 100 are all about God as king. Like it keeps talking about the Lord reigning. R-E-I-G-N. Reign. So, the Lord reigns. Look in Psalm 97 here. And look over in Psalm 99, first verse. Same thing. The Lord reigns. And so we're in that psalm. So, what does, before we begin anything, what does the Lord reign or reigns mean? What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about God as king. And uh, I'm going to ask the folks to put up a couple quotes. Yeah, here we go. It's speaking of God's sovereign authority. And so we throw these words around a little bit, but let's talk about what they are or what it is. What is God's sovereignty or God's sovereign authority? Well, one thinker, Dr. Norman Geisler, theologian, says this, real simple. Sovereignty is God's control over his creation. Dealing with his governance, and that's important, dealing with his governance over it. Sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. Number two, Charles Ryrie. Here we go, yep. The word means principle, chief, supreme. What word? Sovereignty. It speaks first of position. God is the chief being in the universe. Then of power. God is supreme in power in the universe. How he exercises that power is revealed in the scriptures. A sovereign God could be a dictator. God is not that. Or a sovereign could abdicate the use of his powers. God doesn't do that or has not done that. Ultimately, God is in control of all things, though he may choose to let certain events happen according to natural laws which he has ordained. That's from Charles Ryrie. This is from a bunch of pastors at gotquestions.org, gotquestions.org. The sovereignty of God means that he has total control of all things, past, present, and future. Nothing happens that is out of his knowledge and control. All, th- You know, when you think about this, it's like mind-blowing. Here we are in little West Elizabeth, PA, and he knows what's happening in Carmel, Indiana, or... Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or Afghanistan, or the universe, <laughs> or Ohio, or Cal- you know, and on, on you go, and all the lives and all the people. Anyway, nothing happens that's out of his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and timing, uh, Romans 11 there, 36, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6, 
He is the only absolute and omnipotent ruler of the universe and is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. Wow. So I think it's important that when we're studying the attributes of God, we sort of get, we just don't throw the terms around. We, we start to understand them as best we can, don't you think? And so those are just ways. Those are one of many definitions you can look up about the sovereign authority of the Lord. Well, here's what Psalm 97 says. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. And that's interesting because where did the Lord reign from, in a sense? Where was God's city? Jerusalem and Israel. And here it's talking about the uh, earth is rejoicing, even the multitude of isles. And what that means is, of course, it might be talking about real islands, but what it's saying is that to places all around the world, let the earth be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. And so let's think about this. What was God's original design, or God's design, not original, but God's design for Israel? What was God's design for Israel? Well, Israel was to be a light to the Gentile nations. And we see that in Genesis 12, uh, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. But the point is, Israel was not to be a, as Norman Geisler says, I love it, Israel wasn't to be a container of God's love, contain the love. It was to be a conveyor of God's love to the rest of the world. You get it? But Israel failed in that. And that's what much of the Bible's about. Babylon, exile, 586 B.C., the whole shooting match, and then the return from captivity. What's interesting about that is we have a similar mission. Just like Israel was designed to show God's love and gospel and light and truth and forgiveness and compassion and kindness and greatness and go on and on and on, the church now is to take that message and his life to the entire world. That's what we're to be. You could just look in Luke 2.32. You could look and just see Acts. <laughs> and we're an extension of the book of Acts. So we're on mission. The Lord reigns, and that causes us to rejoice. You get it? Once we start to understand the attribute of God with respect to his kingship, then what naturally comes is a response. Man, I can't believe we sang those songs today. They were perfect. It's a response. And the earth is rejoicing. All the peoples and the multitude of isles are glad. All over all the earth. Clouds and darkness surround him. That speaks of his judgment. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteous in action. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. Remember, God is a consuming fire. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. 
Um, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Now, here's another thing. You, you get <laughs> that the psalmist here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is compiling information from the rest of the word. And that's fascinating to me because the Lord takes the child of God who intakes the word of God and by the spirit of God does amazing things. And here, you're, or the psalmist through God, he's evoking images of things like the wilderness wanderings, because remember, how did they move out in the wilderness? What appeared before them in the daytime? Yeah, smoke or a cloud, right? And when the cloud moved, uh, they would move. And then what else would appear in the nighttime? Fire. And so he's evoking those images, but also remember when Moses and uh, Aaron and those folks went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and the law was given, there was crackling and thunder and lightning and all that sort of thing. So he's evoking those images. And then in verse 6, I mean, clearly he's taken this from Psalm 19, hasn't he? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and here the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. See, that's the purpose and the mission of God. And let's not miss that. The mission of God is that He's getting men and women, boys and girls, into the family of God who once were enemies of God through His Son, Jesus, by the grace of God and the mercy of God through His Son and by the blood and His resurrected life and bringing us back to Himself. Why? So that we could live with Him in all eternity as He reigns. You get it? And so all these things, let all be put to shame, verse 7, who serve carved images, who serve carved images, who boast of idols, worship him, all you gods. What were the reasons Israel went into captivity? Two reasons. They wouldn't uh, honor the year of rest. And number two, their national and personal lives spiraled out of control as they brought idols into their life. And that was a no-no, as you know, from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that includes putting another god beside him or with him. Christ tells us in the New Testament that our claims, our allegiance, is exclusive. That's what's different than the other religions especially at the time of Jesus. Remember, the Romans served many gods and the Greeks before served many gods. But when Christ came on the scene, there was no room for that. You were to take up, uh, your, take up your cross and follow him. And there was only one way to heaven. There is only one way to heaven. So the claims are exclusive. And idols were a tough thing, a very difficult thing in the life of Israel. And I would say even today, Idols are everywhere in America, everywhere, and they don't appear as little figurines that we stick in the home. They appear in our hearts and our minds. Anything that competes for the affection of God in your life, in my life, first place is an idol. 
Now that's sobering. Because we can make idols out of people, relationships. We can make idol out of our 401k and our wealth. And we can make idols out of position and power and image. Do people like me enough? Am I being seen enough? And on and on and on we go. Everything is a threat to be an idol. And the Lord says, as we sang tonight, but we're to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the only way we can love him like that, I think, is when we understand who he is and we respond back to it. Understand who he is in relation to who we are without him and respond back. I think that's the only way we fall in love with the Lord. Well, here he says, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all your gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, that doesn't mean there are any real gods. It just means that other people serve gods. Get it? And that those gods are false gods and are not alive. And they're to turn from them, of course. Now here's one. Watch this. For the child of God, the person of God. And this is a great warning to us and a great thought to us as we see God as a consuming fire. Now you know if you have surrendered your life to Christ, he's taken care of your sins past, present, future. He's put them away. And he doesn't count them against you. And in Isaiah, he actually says he remembers them no more. And so you have that. And yet, those who love the Lord hate evil. And you go, okay, yeah, sure, I, I hate evil. I don't want to watch The Exorcist or anything like that. That's probably not going to be something on my agenda. But I just want you to read through these verses with me, or just listen, Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord, respect, honor, awe, reverence is to hate evil. Watch this pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So before you go, well, I don't have a perverse, perverse mouth. Maybe perverse, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean sexually perverse. It means uh, crooked off of the will of God, deviating from the will of God. You get that? So you could be perverse in this sense. You could be speaking things that aren't according to the word of God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance. I mean, come on, folks. He hates that. And he doesn't like it in his kids, his people. How about this? Romans 12, 9, let love be without a mask. And it says hypocrisy, but in the Greek, it means a actor's mask. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You guys know these scriptures. Psalm 119, 104, through your precepts, through your precepts, I can't talk. I just spit all over my notes. I get understanding. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Isn't that interesting? I hate every false way. Psalm 101.3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to go home and put this on our TVs and on our phones. 
and on our iPads. Psalm 101.3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of these or those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. And you go, okay, yes, we're to hate what is evil. I hate the stuff that looks red and has pitchforks and horns. I hate that stuff. But see, you're missing the point. The stuff that God hates is the stuff that everything in the world, everything the world props up like this. I'm convinced God hates primetime TV. I'm convinced of it. And the reason I say that is, well, lots of reasons, but I remember one time Jan and the kids went to Ohio and I'm writing a sermon, okay? Or thinking I don't write a sermon, so I must have not been writing a sermon. I must have been thinking about the sermon and studying for the sermon. And I turned the TV on. I'll never forget TNT, 8 o'clock, because I thought a basketball game was coming on or a a football game or something, some sporting event, right? And so I start getting into what I was doing and all that. And then all of a sudden, I start listening to the TV. And it's 8 o'clock on like a Tuesday night or a, I don't know what night it was, but a weeknight, okay? And I'm telling you, I'm not saying it was risque. What I was hearing was pornographic. I mean, it was awful. The worst of the worst. And it was between two Unmarried people, and okay, I turned it, but the point was it was at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night or whatever night it was, somebody just flipping the channels. And, you know, we can say and justify and do all of that sort of thing, but let's just be real about it. You ever watch Friends? I mean, we watch Friends all the time when we're in Hawaii. We watch Friends all the time. And I'm not being legalistic about it, but I've got to tell you something. I know God hates friends, not friends, but the show. <laughs> I mean, what's it about? It's about sleeping together and laughing about it and goofing around about it. And it has to be. I mean, how could God think that was in any way cool? Because God's ordained marriage to be a reflection of his gospel. And when people mess with it and joke about it and Put it in the trash and the mud. It must be dishonoring to the Lord. Well, I went off on TV, but you could go anywhere with this. You could go on to the radio, popular songs. You could go on to uh, uh, the things that are read or the Internet, of course, and on and on and on we go. I mean, you could watch sports and you're like... Uh, you know, the guy who scores the touchdown and beats his chest and goes like this. And you're like, dude, there were 10 other guys who got you there. Why is it about you? Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. But not really. Because listen to what this says again. You who love the Lord hate evil. And Romans that I read to you says, let love be without hypocrisy. It's almost like hypocritical for you to love in the way God loves and then go home and watch that stuff. And I'm talking to me, by the way. And on. I, I picked on TV, folks. But we could pick on a million things. But anyway, you who love the Lord hate evil. There's this thing that I think the Lord does as we spend more time with him. We start to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. And that's the point of what I'm trying to say. Probably not very artfully. We begin to love what he loves and to hate what he 
hates and the things that he loves are things like this, forgiveness and confession and transparency and encouragement and truth and the gospel and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit and praise music and honoring him. And you know what he loves? When you commit a sin, you just keep real short accounts and you say, yes, you're right. Lord, that was wrong. I was wrong. You confess it. And then you go to the person who you may have hurt, if you hurt somebody, and you say, could you forgive me? And God loves that. And he hates evil. And then he says he preserves the souls of his saints. Isn't that a comfort? You say, wait a minute, I'm going through it right now. Why aren't I being preserved? Well, you are and you will be. If you are in Christ, you're never more secure anywhere else. And if you're going through something right now that hurts and is tense and stressful, well, I'm sorry about that. I am. I don't want that to happen for you. And yet, the Lord has you, and you're going to be his forever. He preserves the souls of his saints, and he delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. And light is sown for the righteous. Light is sown for the righteous. Do you know that? That light is sown for the righteous. And I got to go here because I left my notes down here because I have to read you something that's so amazing about light is being sown for the righteous. And that's this. F.B. Meyer said this, commenting on this verse, you don't realize it, but you're sowing light. What? Now listen, listen. Each act of self-denial in which you cast yourself into the ground to die. That's a seed germ of the harvest of gladness. I'm going to read that again. You don't realize it, but you're sowing light. Each act of self-denial in which you cast yourself into the ground to die is a seed germ of the harvest of gladness. Of gladness. Why? Why is he saying that? Look, light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Isn't that amazing? It's speaking sort of like every morning when you wake up, you know, and it's dark out, and then all of a sudden the light comes up over the horizon and you start to see light on the ground. It's, it's bringing that images, image up to you. And it talks about how light quietly shines on God's people's paths. God's light quietly just goes on shining on the paths of his people. Do you get that? He opens up light. What, what do you love about light? What do, you, what do you love about light? Oh, you guys at my house about November 1st, they all get excited. I get excited, man. We're going to put up lights, and they're going to be twinkling lights. And there's just something about it that brings joy and gladness to the heart. But what else does light do? I mean, light comforts, light brings direction, light takes scariness away and brings <laughs> comfort, what'd you say? Clarity, yes, and security and warmth, that's light. And this is speaking of that light that comes over the horizon, but really it's God who is light and it's sown for the righteous, light quietly shining on his people's paths and the gladness 
for the upright in the heart. In other words, I want you to catch this. Joy comes when we walk in His light. And that's why it's so bad to stay in the dark. In fact, in the New Testament, it says if you walk in the darkness and claim you're a Christian, you're lying to yourself. Now, that doesn't mean people don't make mistakes. We all make mistakes and walk in the light longer than we, or excuse me, the darkness may be longer than we should sometimes. But here, there's this beautiful thing that the Lord says is, let's just come clean because you are clean by the blood of Christ. Light is sown for the righteous. So it speaks of how God shines light in our paths. And when we walk in the light, we're glad. But it also speaks of, just like F.B. Meyer says, dying to self, sowing light. Every act of self-denial is a seed germ of the harvest of gladness. Isn't that beautiful? And what happens when you know that principle? What happens when you know that principle? Watch, you rejoice. I mean, just speaking of it makes my heart soar. S-O-A-R, I hope it does for you. That we can rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And what did we talk about on Sunday? His holy name is not just his name, it is that, but it's his character. When we think about God sowing that light, and we walking in the light in response, and him And his character, man, give thanks. Psalm 98. Psalm 98. The next psalm in the psalm about kingship. This psalm is just titled a psalm. Isn't that interesting? It's the only place with that title in the psalms. But it speaks of praise to God for his work of salvation in widening circles. In other words, first in Israel and then to the earth and finally creation. Because why? Why are we keep going in that way in these Psalms? Because that's what his kingship is all about. He's building a kingdom or he is the king and he's interested in a kingdom. Get it? And so that's naturally what these Psalms would be about. So he says here, oh, by the way, this is the Psalm. Psalm 98, that Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World for, or from. And remember, Joy to the World isn't about the first advent. It's about the second advent when Jesus comes again. Remember that? I think we maybe we should sing it at the end. Josie, cue that up. <laughs> we have, might have that somewhere. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Man, and just... That has been the theme throughout many of the most recent psalms about his kingship is singing and new song. Because when you become a Christian, you you have the Lord come into your life. When you trust Christ, he puts a new song in your heart. And yes, it's a singing song because things come out where you want to sing. I'm tempted to say this, guy. I'm going to get the guys right here. Guys, sing. I'm talking to the men. Don't sit there and clam up. Sing. You ha- I know you love the Lord. Sing. I know your voice is bad. Sing. No, I'm kidding. Your voice is good. Sing. Sing out. 
Don't be embarrassed. You love the Lord and the Lord loves you. And this is your opportunity to tell him, sing out, men. And I know you women do it, so I can hear you up here. (laughs) Sing to the Lord a new song. For why? Why would I do that? He's done marvelous things. You know, that's a past tense word, done. Right? I'm terrible at maybe knowing all the things, anyway, of English. But that's a past word, past tense word. Would you agree? So in other words, one of the things you do in praise is you remember the former things that Christ has done, God has done, and you praise him for it. And so I'm going to tell you again and just encourage you here, grab a journal, put the things in your journal that you're praying about and go back just every once in a while and look at how many of them he's he's answered and blessed you with. And you'll go, whoa, amazing I'm praising the Lord. Can't wait to get to uh, church, stand up front, especially if I'm a man, and sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. By the way, here again, the psalmist is a student of the scriptures. Why do I know that? Because there's an unbelievable a similarity between this first part of Psalm 98 and the song that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sang in Luke 1, 46 through 55, which m- might mean, isn't this fascinating, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had this psalm in mind as she composed and sang her song. Isn't that funny? And she would foresee in what was happening to her and her family that this psalm And the promises of this psalm were being fulfilled in her life. Isn't that fascinating? And just beautiful and wonderful. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. His righteousness, or the Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed. How did he do that pre-Jesus? Again, it's a theme over and over. He did it through his people, the people of Israel. In the sight of the nations, Israel was to be a light unto the nations, remember? He's remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have been the salvation of, or have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm. How would the whole world at the time have seen that they were being cared for by God? Well, let's think about it. Assyrians go and they take the ten northern tribes. Remember this? In around 722 or so BC. And then what do the Assyrian tribes or the Assyrian uh, army do? They come literally right to the gate of Jerusalem. And the king's like, oh, no. And in fact, they send these propagandists up to the uh, walls, and they speak in Hebrew, and they tell them, your king's a schlep, and he's going to get knocked out, and you should just come over to our side. And they walk up and down the walls and taunt them and taunt them. And it was really bad. And the king is like, well, if we don't have God do this for us, We're not out of here. We're going to get overtaken. And the Lord saves them miraculously. Remember that story? And then 
What else did the world witness? The world witnessed about 150, 200 years later that they got taken out, the southern uh, tribes got taken out to Babylon, and in this miraculous way, how does this keep happening? God lets them come back into their land. And, oh, and, and you know, Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild their city. And oh, by the way, Sarah got me this book for Christmas called Jerusalem Besieged. It's an amazing book. It's about all the battles for the fight of Jerusalem. It's fascinating. And what's amazing about Jerusalem is the enemy whacks Jerusalem. And God goes like this. Boop. Covers them. The enemy whacks Jerusalem. Boop. Whack. Boom. And it just keeps happening. And you know, for centuries now, Israel was, quote unquote, wiped off the map. And in 1948, through miraculous circumstances, unbelievable, they come back into being. How does the world see the salvation of the Lord prior to Christ? Well, he keeps saving them and keeping a remnant. And then, of course, Jesus came through Israel, the real light of the world, right? And died for our sins and rose again. And that's the greatest thing. That's how they keep seeing it. So why wouldn't they sing to the Lord, verse 5, with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and sound of a horn? Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. There it is again. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the or the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. This is such beautiful language, poetic language. It's as if, you know, he's hearing this psalmist like the river flowing, and he hears in the flowing of the river, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the rapids and that sort of thing, the little brook, the clapping of the hands. And he's, it's as if up in the mountains he's hearing the, the wind whipping through there, and it's a joyful sound that it's singing to the Lord because why? Let the rivers clap, let the hills be joyful. Why? For he's coming to judge the earth. He's coming. And if you read Romans 8, 18 through 25, at the second advent, Jesus sets creation free from the bondage that happened when Adam and Eve rebelled. Creation. It's groaning. And Christ is even going to set that right. I mean, this is all-encompassing, all-powerful, and this is the one we serve and love. He's not too small for any of our problems or situations. He's big enough. So he's coming to judge with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Praise the Lord that he is going to judge fairly and equitable. How about this? Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Ever heard that before? (laughs) Let the peoples tremble because he dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Now, what is that speaking of? He dwells between the cherubim. Well, it's speaking of, of course it is, uh, in the Holy of Holies, there was a mercy seat and it had two wings of a cherubim that came up over the seat and almost touched And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that that's where the kabod, the glory of the Lord, resided, and that's where he communicated with the people he communicated with, like Moses. He dwells between the cherubim. 
well, I want to show you something. I'm going to take just a little time out and go somewhere. Go to John chapter 20. Because I always like to bring people here when we talk about the cherubim. And I want you to go to verse 11. And this is when there's an empty tomb. Remember that? This is where there's an empty tomb. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stood down and looked into the tomb. And here's what I want you to see. (laughs) In verse 12, it says, And she saw two angels in white, one sitting, or white, sitting, one at the head, another at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, just like the mercy seat in Exodus 25, 18 and 19. In other words, you've just seen God. This is God. That's what that's telling you right there. Isn't that fascinating? And so, as you turn back here, he dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved or shaken. The Lord is great in Zion, and he's high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Get in the habit right? Get in the habit of singing and praising your Lord and Savior. Get in the habit because he is great and he has awesome character or name or nature or essence. This is one who you truly can say is awesome. Get in the habit of singing and praising. Get in the habit of being together here because it says, let them praise your great and awesome name. Get here. Yeah, I had uh, some people tell me, about six months ago, I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to tell it to you. They go, oh, we just come for the sermon, which first of all, they must thought it was a different church, but because of me. Anyway, uh, but I'm like, what? You're coming for the sermon? You're, you're not coming to worship and praise? Well, you're missing out, and the Lord calls us to praise Him. You're, you're totally missing out. You know, how hard would it be to set your alarm clock 10 minutes early or 15 minutes early or 20 minutes early? I mean, come on. That's not what we do. You come, come, come for the praise, come for the worship. It's where we, our hearts get right and attitudes get adjusted. And we pour out in honor and blessing to the one who deserves it. No, don't miss the worship. And let's do it together because he is holy. The king's strength also loves justice, verse 4. You have established equity, fairness. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. That's his character. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Why? He's holy. Here it is again. It's our privilege in response to worship him. He's holy and we get to respond in worship. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel among those who called upon his name, because those guys had to intercede for people. That's what this is sort of referring to. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept up his test, or they kept his testimonies and uh, and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives. 
Though you took vengeance on their deeds, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Now, if you're an astute studier of the Bible, this psalm is giving you unbelievable motivation to worship the Lord. And you're like, huh? Do you know how hard it was for these people to get into the presence of the Lord? Here's what they had to do. They had to go talk to a priest. Maybe even bring an animal that they had, uh, you know, raised. Take it down to the priest when they needed to. Put the hand on the back and of the head of the, or the neck of the thing. And, and the priest, you know, said, hey, you stay here. I'm going to go in a little farther and do the work closer to God. But you stay here. And only one could go all the way in one time a year into the presence of the Lord. And what this is telling you is these people, based on that, got up and jumped and praised. And the reality is, when we read Hebrews and Timothy, we know that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And when we surrender our lives and trust in Christ, we can come boldly to his throne room, and not just boldly, to find don't you want to find it? You ever been on a treasure hunt and you just blah, blah, blah. But you, can, you know where you're going. You're going to the throne room of God. And you know why you're going because of the blood of Jesus that gives you access. And when you go there and you're there with the Lord, he's going to give to you all the grace you need and all the mercy you need. And these people couldn't do that. I mean, they had a process that was much more difficult I don't know if I should say it that way. Of course, Jesus paid the price for this. It was costly. And now we sort of just, eh, I'll show up for the sermon. Ooh. Hmm. Pretty flippant. But when you think about that, we have access. You're in your car. And you're not being cavalier or flippant, but the Lord just, you, you just need the Lord in your car. You can go there. You're out on the soccer field and, you know, things aren't going right in your life. And you're out there on the sidelines. You could just bow your head and be with the Lord. By the blood of Christ, it's a privilege, it's an honor. And it was made by Jesus. Man, oh man, where else would we work? Why would we stop worshiping? We worship for the Lord our God is holy. And that's the point. He's holy. We're not. And we have a way. It's incredible. Psalm 100, a song of praise for the people's faithfulness to a people, a psalm of thanksgiving. Chuck Smith said this, when the Pilgrim Fathers first established the colonies in New England, they took their hard uh, hardships in stride. They called many times for fasting and prayer to receive from God but one of the elder Puritans thought they were way too concerned about their own burdens. I want Americans to hear that. And that in, in their fasting and prayer, they had forgotten to recognize and be thankful to God for all that he'd done. Listen, they were doing religious things. Did you catch that? So they decided rather than a day of fasting and prayer, they should call for a day of thanksgiving. One of God's indictments against the world in Romans 1.21 is that we aren't thankful. As his children, we will have hardship in this life 
and go through many trials, but we must remember to be thankful for all that he has done. This is called a psalm of thanksgiving. I want you to see it has characteristics right here at the beginning of a spirit-filled joy or a, a spirit-filled life. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. A shout to the Lord, all you lands. There it is again. Israel is a light unto the Gentiles, all the lands. So we're to be a light unto all the lands. And again, we have that commission to go to all the earth. But here's what I want you to see. Make a joyful shout to the Lord as we worship. As we worship, watch what it leads to. I want you to write it down, especially if you're coming to adult Sunday school. As we worship, make a a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Look, we begin to serve. Write it down, adult Sunday school people. We begin to serve. And how do we serve? We don't serve in a crusty way, in a jerky way, in a cranky way. We serve the Lord with gladness. Oh man, oh man, oh man. Worship leads to service. And by the way, write this down. True service is worship. True service is worship because you're doing it as unto the Lord. If you're not doing it as unto the Lord, it's not service. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. I want you to see something here. We're to be uh, spirit-filled Christians or joyful. Doesn't mean you're happy about everything. It means you have a deep anchored joy, a stability. You know who you are in Christ and you're anchored in that and you serve the Lord and you're very thankful and you come before his presence with singing, knowing that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. That means you submit yourself to God. And that's where I think feel like a lot of Christians don't do it oh, it's so wonderful to sing and to recognize the Lord. But if he's calling me to submit to all his stuff, well, forget that. I'm not submitting. Well, it's he who has made us and now not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures in all generations. One more, and we're done. And I, I just, look, all of that's out of a response of, of who he is and what he's done. I want you to see that. One more. This is a psalm of David. We've now just gone out of the reign or kingship psalms, the royal psalms. Most people believe uh, this psalm was at the beginning of David's reign. Possibly, do you remember this? I'll bet you remember this. You know, when David began to reign, he had this real passion to get the Ark of the Covenant up to near where he was in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? You could look in 1 Samuel 6.1. It had been in the house of a guy named Abinadab for many years, and then it went into the house of Obed-Edom after uh, David cut short an attempt to relocate it. That's all in 2 Samuel 6. You can look at that. So this psalm was probably written right around that time, and many people just write this down, 
and I'm almost done. On his day of being, you know, his coronation day, right at the beginning, it would be like, you know, when the president gets uh, voted in and then what does he give the first time? Anyway, whatever he gives the first time, that's what this would be. Some people believe that. Watch this. I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I'll sing praises. This is David singing or talking. Remember, the king was supposed to rule the way God commanded. Deuteronomy 17, 2 Kings 23. The ruler of Israel was supposed to reign in a way that God commanded. And he says, I'll sing of mercy and justice. What's mercy? Look, mercy and justice are related. Justice means you get what you deserve. Mercy means you don't get what you do deserve. Grace means you get what you don't deserve. They're all related. And here, David knew it. I'll sing of your mercy, but I want you to see something. This is, this is cool. <laughs> It'll bless your heart. D David didn't sing for mercy. David sang of his mercy. He knew about it. It, he, it impacted him. And when it impacted him, he sang. He was a singer. He was joyful. I'll sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I'll sing praises. I'll behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. That doesn't mean perfect like he wasn't a sinner. We all know that. He means he'd walk with integrity. But I want you to see something. He, David, knew there shouldn't be some disconnect between who he was in his office and who he was at home. You catching that? <laughs> I'll sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I'll sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? That's why people think, by the way, it might have been about the ark because he always desired the ark, the presence of the Lord be near. But anyway, I'll walk within my house with a perfect heart. What's perfect mean? Again, not perfection, not sinless perfection. We know that of David, of course. He had the sins of all sins. And yet he had this integrity. What else did he have? What did he cultivate? You want to write this down. What do you do to mature? What do you cultivate in your life? What do you cultivate? You uh, cultivate integrity, who you are when you're alone, what you do, the corners that you don't cut. You cultivate a singleness of heart. It's talked about in the New Testament many times. Your love of the Lord and your devotion to the Lord out of His greatness. I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. Remember that there's the lust of the eyes, 1 John chapter 2. The eyes can really do a rough thing to a person, so you got to really guard your heart, and you do it by guarding your eyes, right? And here's what David said, I'll sing of mercy. I will behave wisely. I will walk with my house with integrity. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Whoa, what's that all about? Well, many people believe now he's switching to what his public office is, but still the point is he's not going to take counsel from people who have fallen away from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore them or shun them or anything like that, 
But what he's saying is they're not going to be in my council. They're not going to be in my cabinet. That's not who this administration is going to be about. And that's a pretty interesting thing. I mean, but in New Testament times, there's a whole list of things that we can do to gently restore a person who's sort of fallen away from the Lord. But here, David addresses it. I hate the work of those who fall away. It's not going to cling to me. And a perverse heart, a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. A perverse heart, again, doesn't conform to God's will. It's twisted. There's many verses in the Proverbs about it. And I think what he's talking about here is both himself, he doesn't want to have a perverse heart, a twisted heart, but he also doesn't want to surround himself for the great of Israel and the good of Israel with people who have a twisted heart. Everybody with you, with me? Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. That's not going to be in his council <laughs> or his cabinet. People who uh, talk uh, in a bad way about people when it's not appropriate. Him I will destroy. It's never good to speak secretly about somebody unless, of course, you're saying good things about them. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I won't endure. That's not going to be in his cabinet. That's not something he wants in his life. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the, of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. And again, he's saying he's going to surround himself with people in his cabinet who have an uh, 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 integrity in their walk and in their way. Sort of like what happens in the New Testament for a church. God sets out the pattern for elders and leaders in the church. And what are they? They're like this. They're things like this. And they're specific uh, requirements or characteristics of people who should be an elder. And uh, David recognized that here. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. No way. He's not going to um, uh, uh, have that in him and to influence him. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early will I, I will destroy all the wicked of the land that make of, of all the evildoers. Uh, from the city of the Lord. That's really interesting, verse 8. And the reason that's interesting is because leaders in a town in Israel, where would they adjudicate crimes? They would do it at the gate, the gate of the city. And if actually you come to Israel with us in March of 2024, Lord willing, or he doesn't come back first, you're going to go to a couple gates in Israel. It's not the same gate that David was at, maybe, but uh, you're going to see what a gate is like. And they would sit there early in the morning and adjudicate these things. And I think that's what he's referring to there, that I might cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Well, listen, Psalm 101 said this, that we're to serve the Lord with gladness. I'm going to read you something from Adam Clark about that verse. It's your privilege and duty. I don't have this queued up. Sorry, I'm not as organized as I should. But it's your privilege and duty. It's our privilege and duty to be happy in your religious worship. The religion of the true God is intended to remove human misery and to make mankind happy. He whom the religion of Christ has not made happy doesn't understand that religion or doesn't make a proper use of it. 
Spurgeon said this, as for the true believer in Jesus, he serves his God because he loves to serve him. Did you catch that? A true believer in Jesus serves his God because he loves to serve him. He assembles with the great congregation because, here it is, it's his delight to worship the Most High. So, let's do this. Let's pray. And let's remember what an amazing privilege we have to come to the throne room of grace, paved way by the blood of his son Jesus. Even though the Lord's holy and we're sinners saved by grace, we can come to find mercy and grace. How happy and joyful is that? Let's serve him in delight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, and we just pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts of worship and service unto you, and we thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.